You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Returning now to the Apologia for Vita Sua, it wouldn't be too much to say, I think, that what the Oxford movement aimed to do was to show that the English church was the Catholic church in England. What they sought to do was to show that the Catholicity of the English church had been obscured by certain Protestant elements that had entered into the history of that church, but if one returned to its founding documents, the 39 articles, the homilies, and so forth, one would find their justification for their claim, the claim of the Oxford movement people, the Tractarians, that it was essentially the Catholic church in England. This is the sense of the so-called via media, or the middle way between, on the one hand, Protestantism and, on the other, Romanism, so that the Tractarian movement set out to show this, and to show that at least, minimally, that the Catholic interpretation of the English Church was as respectable as the Protestant interpretation of the English Church. This was their effort, and much of what they had to say was meant to underwrite this and to make the point historically that this was indeed the case. This involved, of course, a negative attitude on their part towards the two terms between which they were sailing as the uh, Scylla and Charybdis here of the Via Media, and on the one hand, Protestantism, and on the other hand, Romanism. Huh? Romanism would be criticized in very severe terms, right up and almost to his conversion by Newman, where he seems to be trying to convince himself that there wasn't some kind of lurking attraction to Romanism that was really explaining what was drawing him. So he rehearses all of the standard objections to the Roman Church, superstition, and the addition of doctrine. Huh? The addition of doctrine. This is going to be crucial for Newman, and of course that the Pope is Antichrist. Newman is calling him this early and, as I say, considerably late in his Anglican career. But this is the project. This is the project to show that the Church in England is a continuation of the Catholic Church and that the Roman Church is a sort of a spin-off or a degenerate instance of it and clearly cannot be the model for the English church. Protestantism is breaking with Catholicism, so that can't be a model. So this via media develops, and this effort is undertaken to show that Anglicanism is Catholicism. So Anglo-Catholicism, or high church. One might say that there was a good deal of, let's say, tolerance on the part of the Tractarian. They acknowledged that there was some justification for the interpretation of the English church as Protestant, and they weren't trying to drive anybody out of their churches and so forth. And it was a sort of, you might say, live and let live. So we got this high, middle, and low Anglicanism that tended to develop. In the novels of Trollope, the Oxford movement is often in the wings. Certain novels, priests will enter in, and they're always trying to convert people, very unlike Newman and the Tractarian. But very often, 
as in the French Lieutenant's Woman, if you know that novel. In the wings are people that like to wear surplices and shake incense sensors around and light a lot of candles and so forth. It's trivialized into a kind of showmanship rather than anything else. But you could pick up instances in Victorian novels and earlier or modern novels that take up that period, such as the French Lieutenant's Woman, you pick up the sort of caricature of the Tractarian movement on the side. Mrs. Prouty, of course, the wife of the bishop in the Barsetshire novel, is a foe of anything like liturgical piety and Tractarian or high church sorts of things. She's a very evangelical woman. In the course of describing his religious opinions from 1833 to 1839, Newman sums up his position at this particular time in three propositions. He says, I have spoken of my firm confidence in my position at this time. And now let me state more definitely what the position was which I took up and the propositions about which I was so confident. These were three. First was the principle of dogma. My battle was with liberalism. We'll come back to that. By liberalism, I mean the anti-dogmatic principle and its development. This was the first point on which I was certain. So the dogmatic principle understood as opposed to liberalism. We'll see Newman's rather extensive description of what he means by his main foe there, liberalism. Secondly, the second proposition about which he was quite certain at this time, I was confident in the truth of a certain definite religious teaching based upon this foundation of dogma, namely that there was a visible church with sacraments and rites which are the channels of invisible grace. A very Catholic understanding, of course. He said, when I began the Tracts for the Times, I rested the main doctrines of which I am speaking upon Scripture, on the Anglican prayer book, and on St. Ignatius' epistle. He says, as to the existence of a visible church, he argued from Scripture, the sacraments and sacramental rites, he argued for them, and then this, which was to be crucial, the Episcopal system, the bishops as the successors of the apostles, he founded that, he says, on the epistle of St. Ignatius of Antioch. So here you have Newman in the heyday or the golden period of the Oxford movement summarizing what he's absolutely convinced of at this point. And any Catholic hearing that would say, that sounds extremely Catholic, a dogmatic principle, the sacramental system, and the episcopacy, uh, successors of the apostles, and ordaining priests to help them in dispensing the sacraments, saying the mass, and so forth. You can see why when Newman's fellow Anglicans who didn't share this drive of the Oxford movement would begin to think, well, what's going on here? It sounds as if Anglicanism is being defined in terms of Romanism. There was an historical argument. I mentioned that in the Apologia we find this interweaving of the objective or the abstract, so to speak, and the personal. And in speaking of the Monophysite heresy, another historical reference, he says on page 113, about the middle of June, I began to study and master the history of the Monophysites, those who held there was only one nature in Christ. I was absorbed in the doctrinal question. It's quite abstract, you can say. 
This was from about June 13th to August 30th. He's talking about 1839. It was during this course of reading, and for the first time, a doubt came upon me of the tenableness of Anglicanism, 1839. What was the doubt? He said, my stronghold in arguing, as he had, was antiquity. Now here, he says, in the middle of the fifth century, I found, as it seemed to me, Christendom of the 16th and 19th century reflected. 16th century, the Reformation. 19th century, Newman's own century. I saw my face in the mirror, and I was a monophysite. The Church of the Via Media was in the position of the Oriental Communion. Rome was where she now is, and the Protestants were the Eutychians. You might think, well, that ought to do it. I mean, this is 1839. Why wouldn't that prompt him then to abandon the church into which he had been ordained and to embrace the one that he saw as representing in the Monophysite heresy what it represented in the 19th century and what it represented in the 16th century? So if the Monophysites were heretics, why am I not a heretic as an Anglican? The phrase that rang in his ears, as he said, was securus judicat orbis terrarum, from St. Augustine. It is the whole world, the universal church, that is the secure or safe judge in matters of doctrine. Notice the way in which Newman is describing his development, how different he is in this regard from Kierkegaard. Newman's faith bears on the church as an historical entity, as something in time, and it's not simply the individual relating to Christ historically or actually in, in the privacy of his own heart without any relationship to others who make the same profession. One of the articles of the Nicene Creed, of course, is I believe in the church. Huh? I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. That's one of the objects of faith. This seems all but absent from Kierkegaard, and it is right in the middle of things with regard to Newman. But notice again, this kind of intellectual awareness, this kind of doubt that arises in his mind, doesn't lead immediately to any kind of personal move. Huh? And that's one of the points of this great book. But a time came in which he said he suffered three terrible blows to the assumption that he and the other Tractarians were making about the English church. And you'll find this on page 133 of Ian Carr's edition of the Apologia. Those three blows came in the summer of 1841. Summer was a difficult season for Newman, obviously. In the summer of 1841, he says, I found myself at little more without any harass or anxiety in my mind. I had determined to put aside all controversy, and I set myself down to my translation of St. Athanasius. But between July and November, I received three blows which broke me, which finally led to his leaving the Anglican Church. Well, the three blows that struck Newman were these. The first is somewhat the same as in his reference earlier to the Monophysite heresy. He said the ghost had come a second time. Remember, he said he began to doubt about the viability or tenableness of Anglicanism when he had this sense that the Anglican Church, if it were compared to that earlier controversy, was not in the middle. It was off on the extreme, and the middle way was the Roman way. That ghost had come a second time. In the Aryan history, I found the very same phenomenon in a far bolder shape, which I had found in the Monophysite. 
I had not observed it in 1832. That's when he wrote the book, his first book, The Aryans of the Fourth Century. Wonderful that this should come upon me. I had not sought it out. I was reading and writing in my own line of study, far from the controversies of the day, on what is called a metaphysical subject. But I saw clearly that in the history of Arianism, the pure Arians were the Protestants, the semi-Arians were the Anglicans, and that Rome now was what it was then. The truth lay not with the Via Media, but with what was called by the Via Media people the extreme party, Romanism. That's the blow. And as he says, it's a return of an earlier doubt. And he says, I was in the misery of this new unsettlement when a second blow came upon me. The bishops, one after another, began to charge against me. One of the ironies of the Oxford movement was its insistence on the episcopacy. Almost no Anglican bishop accepted this description of his function or his role. Newman's own Anglican bishop was a very gentle and kind man and always treated him with a great deal of deference and respect and vice versa. But no bishop thought of himself in these Catholic terms that Newman and his home friars were insisting were embedded in the founding documents of the English church. But what are you going to do if you say to a bishop or to the body of bishops that this is your function, this is your role within the church? And they say, no, it isn't. That's a blow, and that's how he described it. But the worst blow of all, perhaps, came in terms of the affair of the Jerusalem bishopric. This was, I suppose, a necessary consequence of Erastianism, that is, turning the church over to politicians to guide it and to make selections of bishops and so forth, however guided they might be by other people, and to have non-believers in parliament who would be engaged in making decisions for the church of which they were not members. An anomalous situation, I think anyone would admit. But what is meant by the affair of Jerusalem bishopric was the decision to share a bishop in Jerusalem, the English church, with the Lutheran church, with the Protestant. And this, of course, meant that the English church had no sense of itself along the lines of the Tractarians, namely that it wasn't a Protestant church. This was to completely muddy the waters as to the nature of that church as it had been understood by the Tractarians. And of course, what that meant was not that the English church got it wrong and they were right, but that they had the English church wrong. And this was the cumulative effect of these blows and it left Newman bereft of any possibility of seeing his membership in the Anglican Church in the way that had been developed in the tracts and what he had come to see as the true understanding of what the church is. But the Anglican Church, through its bishop, through this appointment of a bishop in Jerusalem, made it crystal clear that it did not see itself in the way in which the Tractarians did. And those blows brought Newman to his deathbed as an Anglican. I've mentioned several times that when Newman had realizations like this, and the first blow that he mentions here, as he indicates, is the recurrence of a blow, not the first time he had had this doubt or this analogy between heretical sects and the middle way. 
had led him to wonder whether the Anglican Communion wasn't in the role of a heretical sect on that historical model. We can be puzzled when we see these realizations and the doubts and the blows that struck Newman. If we're Kingsley, we might be surprised, why didn't he just do it then? Why didn't he just convert? And one of the points of this book, as I've been insisting, is that that's not the way it works. Great acts take time. And in the Apologia, in a famous passage, he talks about what he calls paper logic. That is, abstract thinking is not that crucial when it comes to my personal decisions. It's not irrelevant, understand, but it's not the immediate motor of a decision. Newman says this on page 118 of Ian Carr's edition of the Apologia. However, my new historical fact had already, to a certain point, a logical force. Down had come the Via Media as a definite theory or scheme under the blows of St. Leo. My prophetical office had come to pieces. That's a book of it. Not indeed as an argument against Roman errors, nor as against Protestantism, but as in behalf of England. I had no longer a distinctive plea for Anglicanism, unless I would be a monophysite. I had most painfully to fall back upon my three original points of belief that I mentioned, the principle of dogma, the sacramental system, and anti-Romanism. In consequence, my main argument for the Anglican claims lay in the positive and special charges which I could bring against Rome. This is the point when he sort of renews his very negative criticisms of Rome. I had no positive Anglican theory anymore, he said. I was very nearly a pure Protestant. Lutherans had a sort of theology, so had Calvinists. I had none. So he portrays himself here as just bereft of the wherewithal to remain in the position that he's in. Now, it's noteworthy, one of the great charges against Catholicism is that it's added all these new doctrines to the scriptural base and that these are simply anomalous. Everything has to be based in a very direct way on scripture. And Newman, at Littlemore, during this very crucial period, just before his conversion, wrote, as an Anglican, one of his most influential books, and that is a history of the development of dogma within the Christian church. And suddenly he saw that this was not something anomalous in terms of criticisms that he had of Romanism, but it just characterizes the history of the church. He would not have been a fundamentalist in the sense that he would assume that simply by looking at Scripture, one would know immediately that this is the divine word. Newman, of course, knew historically that the Bible was a product of the church and not vice versa, that the church had existed prior to the Bible, that the canonical works of the Bible had been decided by the church in council, and that's how they have their authority within the tradition of the church. So for Catholics, tradition and scripture go hand in hand, necessarily so, if you want to ask yourself where the scriptures came from. Newman wouldn't have had any brief for this notion of the scriptures as sort of self-validating for each individual and so forth. They're given to us by the church. But what Newman had been open to was the idea that these Romans have added all these strange teachings and have defined dogmas along the way, and there's just something unprincipled about this. His study of the history of the development of doctrine led him to see that that is the nature of Christianity. 
that if we compare the patristic period, let's say with the 19th century, with the 20th century, and now with the third millennium, there are lots of things that believers would articulate and say that are at best implicit in the beliefs of the first generation of believers. They have to be implicit in them, of course. And Newman gives rules for the development of dogma. It couldn't be the case, as some have wrongly said about Vatican II, that it simply jettisoned earlier teachings of the church and replaced them with contradictory ones. This is not what Newman meant by the development of doctrine. He meant an organic development such that, in a real sense, the faith of the third millennium is the faith of the apostles that our faith is an apostolic one. But what is implicit in that first generation has been made explicit over time in terms of controversies that arose, such as the Arian controversy, when the clarity was achieved with respect to the union of a divine and human nature in the person of Christ. You don't find that just stated as such in scripture, but under the pressure of events, where clarity of doctrine was required in order to settle the dispute within the church, what looks like a new thing, it is a new thing, it's new in the sense of being explicit, is on the plate of believers as one of the articles to which they ascribe when they recite the creed. And so it is over the century. So one of the great arguments, Protestant arguments against Catholicism, namely that it keeps adding on all of these strange new doctrine for who knows what reason, Newman came to see that's the way the church has existed through time. Not that just, again, he thinks just any old thing could be added. He gives very, and they're historically based, rigorous criteria for something's being a genuine development of doctrine as opposed to an aberration. At this point, our abstract arguments come crashing in on Newman, and it was simply a matter of time, we might say, until his personal decision met up with these abstract arguments. And so it did one night at Littlemore when an Italian priest of the Passionist Order was passing through, and he stopped at Littlemore, and Newman greeted him and asked to be received into the Catholic Church. So the great moment came after all of this historical and controversial and polemical matter that had preceded it moving on an abstract level, but also the Newman who is thinking these things and is trying to see the validity of his position as an Anglican priest is gradually having his confidence sapped. And there comes a moment when there is a convergence of the abstract and the personal, and Newman enters the Roman Catholic Church. The question of development of doctrine has particular light when it comes to reactions to Catholic beliefs with respect to the Blessed Virgin. And Newman has this to say about that. The idea of the Blessed Virgin was, as it were, magnified in the Church of Rome as time went on. But so were all the other Christian ideas, as that of the Blessed Eucharist. The whole scene of faint, pale, distant, apostolic Christianity is seen in Rome as through a telescope or magnifier. Thus I am brought to the principle of development of doctrine in the Christian church. And this was to address, what was probably one of the subsidiary difficulties that Newman had with Rome, but a real one nonetheless. But that book of his, written as an Anglican, has achieved a great authority among theologians and historians of Christianity as indeed the way in which we can see a continuity in the seeming constant development and articulation of the implications of the faith that we have received from the apostles. There is perhaps 
No more surprising passage in the Apologia Pro Vita Sua than the one in which Newman says that there is only one choice, and that is between Catholicism and atheism. A startling claim, and one that, of course, enraged people who were neither Catholics nor atheists. But let's look at the statement. He says, And thus again I was led on to examine more attentively what I doubt not was in my thoughts long before, namely the concatenation of arguments by which the mind ascends from its first to its final religious idea. And I came to the conclusion that there was no medium in true philosophy between atheism and Catholicity, and that a perfectly consistent mind under those circumstances in which it finds itself here below must embrace either the one or the other. And I hold this still. I am a Catholic by virtue of my believing in a God. And if I am asked why I believe in a God, I answer that it is because I believe in myself, for I feel it is impossible to believe in my own existence, and of that fact I am quite sure, without believing also in the existence of him who lives as a personal, all-seeing, all-judging being in my conscience. I want to say things about that appeal to conscience in Newman, but notice this false statement, the surprising statement, that either Catholic or atheist. Newman returns to this in an appendix to a later edition of the uh, History of the Development of Doctrine, in which he softens it somewhat. What he means to say, and it's a very personal statement, was that the beliefs that he held, the ones that he had been recounting, the logic of those beliefs pushes him towards Catholicism. And if he went in the other direction, he would end up in atheism. But he's not saying that each and every person who at the present moment is not a Roman Galli is an atheist, but he is arguing out of his own experience, and as I say, I think it's a personal statement that the logic of his beliefs as an Anglican, which of course were not accepted by the Anglican Church, led him inexorably to embrace Catholicism. For all that, it is a resting passage, and of course it drew a good deal of attention and indignation from those who thought that they were being consigned to atheism by the fact that they weren't Roman Catholic. That was not the intention of what Newman had to say. But here he was, as he puts it, on his deathbed as an Anglican. But you notice that reference at the end of this passage that I read about Catholicism or atheism, the reference to conscience and that certitude that he has of his own conscience. One of the contributions of Newman to what we would call natural theology or what he called natural religion is his notion that the proof for the existence of God can be grounded in the reality of the voice of conscience. Newman was not skeptical about what are often called cosmological proofs for the existence of God. That is, the truths about the things around us, the things of our experience, lead us to recognize that they have a cause different from themselves on which they depend and which cause depends on nothing else. This is the mainstay of classical philosophy. It is a constant theme in the Psalms, of course, that the heavens show forth the glory of God, that anyone looking around him in this world is going to find reason enough 
to recognize the presence of God. But Newman has a predilection for the subjective, to which I will return in my final lecture when I compare Newman and Kierkegaard. And he likes the argument that he developed from conscience. We find it already in his philosophical notebook, which was edited by Father Edward Sillam. And we have both the notebook and then a wonderful prefatory volume to it by Sillam in which he discusses the philosophical background of Newman, the sort of things that he read, the sort of books that he had in his library and so forth. We still have that library, of course, in Birmingham, and it's a beautiful scene, a two-level library. You probably have seen pictures of it. It is a magnificent thing. Among the things that Father Sillam draws attention to, Father Ian Carr and his work on Newman tends to downplay any influence of the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas on Newman. And one of the things that one can find by reading Sillam is the number of works of Thomas that Newman not only owned, but that he clearly read that are underlined and have marginalia in them. One of the works that was published by the Tractarians early on was Thomas Aquinas's Catena Aurea, or Golden Chain, a commentary on the four Gospels derived from the commentaries of the fathers of the church. There's really no Thomas in it except as editor, but Sillam points out Newman's copies of the Summa Theologiae of Thomas make it clear that it was used and read by Newman. For all that, I'm not suggesting that he was a Thomas, but I don't think we ought to suggest that a man who was made cardinal in 1879 by Leo XIII, the very year in which Leo launched the Thomistic revival, unlikely to have been indifferent to the thought of a man of the stature of St. Thomas Aquinas in the church. Indeed, when Newman went to Rome to prepare for his ordination as a Catholic priest, he asked about Thomism and so forth. It was sort of dismissed. It was as if he could have shot a cannon through Rome at that time and not hit a Thomas. And Newman was a little surprised by that. He doubtless had thought that this would be a stronghold of Thomistic thought and he was consequently driven back on himself. So if things had been as they ought to have been in Roman universities at the time of Newman's visit there in the 1840s, maybe he would have been even more of a Thomas than he was. But if one wanted, I think, to single out the greatest positive influence on Newman, philosophical influence, I think it would be Aristotle. I think it would be Aristotle, and I'll argue for that proposition again in my final lecture. But what is peculiar to Newman is his effort in the philosophical notebook, and then it shows up elsewhere a number of times in the published works, to show how conscience is a basis for being aware of God which is accessible to anyone whatsoever. It has the great beauty that you don't need a great deal of experience of the world. You have the voice of conscience within you, and that is, Newman will argue, sufficient for recognizing that one is responsible to a creator. When he develops this argument, he says, I'm not arguing from, let's say, this or that particular judgment of conscience that you shouldn't murder, let's say, or you shouldn't commit adultery, but rather from just the fact of conscience. The fact that any of us, when we act, are pondering whether to do this or that, what or which of these paths is the right path for us to take. And we realize that we are answerable for or responsible for the decision that we make. Responsible to whom? Well, a cancer might say to myself, uh, to my sense of duty. But that doesn't seem to answer 
to the kind of sense of accountability that goes along with action. A Freudian might say, well, this is just the voice of the tribe that has been internalized, and you're worried about the opinions of others. There's probably something of that, too, but it doesn't seem to be enough. And what Newman is arguing is that when you attend to what is deeply implied by this notion of moral responsibility and attending to the voice of conscience, you have here an access, a mode of access to God, to the one to whom we are responsible. A very characteristic kind of move on Newman's part. It betrays his predilection for the certain aspects of modern philosophy. In the philosophical notebooks, indeed, Newman proceeds on some occasions, these are just notes, nothing like a sustained narrative or anything, but he shows a certain softness, as someone might say, this one, for the Cartesian approach and the notion that my own existence is that of which I am most certain. Newman says about his early religious opinions that there were two things of which he was absolutely clear, the existence of himself and the existence of God. And we can see there a adumbration, no doubt, of this argument from conscience. It was in being aware of himself as an acting subject, as a moral agent, as a conscientious decider and chooser that he became aware of the one in the presence of whom he was acting and to whom he is responsible and by whom he would be held accountable. So that primacy of conscience, as we might say, is a note of Newman, which we might also say underwrites what could be called the subjective aspect of his thought. Well, once Newman, this very controversial and public figure in England of his time, had become a Roman Catholic, you can imagine the question became, what are we going to do with him, or what sort of thing would he do as a Catholic? Once he had become a Catholic, he had to leave the University of Oxford to resign his fellowship at Oriel, because in order to be a member of the university, one had to ascribe to the 39 articles of the Anglican Church, the interpretation of which the Oratorians had been suggesting was simply rejected. So as a result of Tract 90, which he himself wrote, Newman, the tracts were written by several hands, but Newman wrote a good percentage of them, he could no longer remain in the University of Oxford and consequently had to resign his fellowship. He had already moved with a number of his friends, all of whom eventually came into the church with Newman, into the Catholic Church, some of them at the same memorable evening when Newman himself did. So they had a little community there, but what would be their status? They were all lay people now as far as their membership in the Roman Catholic Church went. One of the first things Newman did was to want to prepare himself for ordination in the Catholic Church. He had not married, so the problem of celibacy was not a problem for him. He had made that promise personally early in his life that he would devote himself to the intellectual and spiritual lives and eschew the married life. That is, for a higher reason, not just because he didn't like girls or something like that. So at any rate, that was not an impediment to ordination on Newman's part, nor of some of his friends. It was his new bishop, his Catholic bishop, advised him to go to Rome to study. It should be said that two of the great figures of the Catholic Church in Newman's time beside himself, the other one was Cardinal Manning, who was also a convert from Anglicanism, had been married, but his wife died, so that when he became a Roman Catholic, he was able to take orders in the Roman Catholic Church. And like Newman, and indeed earlier than Newman, he became a cardinal. 
and it's fashionable among biographers of the two men to talk about controversies and quarrels between these two just remarkable figures. Whatever the truth to that, it would be a difficult choice between the two as to which of them had done the most for the church in England in the 19th century. Manning was known for his identification with the working classes, the dock strike of London. He was down there among the strikers and so forth. Very socially active, though very ascetic man. There's a word portrait of Manning getting out of his carriage with all the cardinalatial panoply about him and crossing from his carriage into a house that we get from Gilbert Chesterton. Hilaire Belloc studied at the oratory in Birmingham where Newman was, but he tends to speak more of Manning than he does of Newman. I take there to be no particular significance to that. At any rate, here you had this 900-pound gorilla, you might say, coming into the Roman Catholic Church, and the question was, what are we going to do with him? When Newman was in Rome, he became acquainted with St. Philip Neri, who had founded the Oratorians, Oratory, a chapel, and these were priests. They lived together, but it's not quite a religious order. It's not quite not a religious order. Anyway, it appealed to Newman because it was as if each group could pretty much define what they were as Oratorians. So that is what the group became the little group around Newman that had come into the church with him and had been ordained with him and had gone to Rome and had prepared themselves there for ordination as Catholic priests. When they returned to England, they set up shop in Birmingham. So the Birmingham Oratory is the setting for the bulk of Newman's subsequent life. But the question, I suppose, arose in his mind, what do I do now? Well, he did some polemical things. I've mentioned that, the difficulty of Anglicans with Roman Catholicism. But one of the projects that was broached for Newman to take on was a translation of Scripture, a English translation that would be based on the Vulgate and that would doubtless, the idea was, it would in its uh, English excellence, it would compete well with the King James version of the Bible. That did not come about, needless to say. But it's one of the tasks that was taken on later by Ronald Knox, another later convert to Catholicism and an Oxford figure of some note. Evelyn Waugh, who wrote A Life of Knox, suggested when Knox's translation of the Bible began to appear, as it did in, I think, the late 40s and early 50s, that this would be the standard translation of the Bible for English-speaking Catholics for centuries to come. It's almost impossible to find a copy of it anymore for reasons that I needn't go into here. It's a marvelous translation. I became aware of it when I was in school, the same school where I found that book, The Red Hat, where Knox's translation was used at the readings in the refectory before we had our meals. And I became acquainted with it. It became almost as familiar to me as the Uwe Reims translation, which was then uh, all but canonical. I don't think Knox's translation could be used in church, but it could be used in refectories. At any rate, Waugh proved himself to be no prophet at all. And maybe it's just as well, although maybe if Newman had translated it, it would have had that longevity that Waugh predicted of the Knox translation. The other suggestion that came Newman's way was one that bore fruit. And that was that he should become rector of a nascent Catholic university to be founded in Dublin. And he accepted that appointment in 1851 and remained rector of that university, commuting a bit between Dublin and Birmingham until 1858. 
And the story of his dealings with the Irish bishops and so forth and their efforts to understand how what he was proposing to do as rector would fit the Irish scene and so forth, this has been the stuff of song and story for a, for a long time. But one of the things that undeniably emerged from this experience, and however unfortunate or let's say lacking in stellar success it was for John Henry Newman, this book, the idea of a university, is sufficient justification, we might say, for this long and in many ways tragic episode. Tragic might be a little strong, but when he went to Dublin, he began to deliver a series of lectures on the nature of a university. So here he had a man who had been nurtured in the University of Oxford, whose whole conception of what a university was would have been formed at Oxford, but who was also conscious of the fact that Oxford had backslid from its original inspiration. It had been originally, of course, a Catholic university, and it no longer was. If it were, Newman would have still been there, but it had receded from the notion that theology is the queen of the sciences. This is the crowning inquiry in a university. And it's as if, I don't take this to be as such a critique of Oxford, but certainly the contrast would suggest itself to someone who thought of the contemporary University of Oxford and the university that Newman is describing, this ideal of a university that he is describing in the book that became the idea of a university. It is a book which many have read who have read nothing else of Newman, and it is a book which has taken on a new relevance in our own time when the very nature of Catholic universities has become obscure to many. And in 1990, John Paul II issued a document called Ex Corde Ecclesiae, from the heart of the church, in which he laid out what is meant by a Catholic university. The title, of course, calling our attention to the historical fact. Universities are products of the church. They come out of the heart of the church. They were ecclesiastical institutions from the beginning. And in that document, John Baltu not surprisingly refers to Cardinal Newman's idea of a university. It is a book that which uh, is a delight to read and, as I say, has a relevance. And it's one that those of us who are involved in Catholic higher education, colleges, universities, would be well advised to read along with Ex Cordia Ecclesiae and to draw the appropriate lessons from it. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.